If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the book of James. We'll be in chapter four. Uh, before we get right into our scripture passage this morning, I, I just want to highlight some good news. Could we do that today? Uh, we have been spending our summer in the book of James, and so often as we get to the book of James, we, we get to the end of these messages, rather, in the book of James. We, we, we see that God's word just has a, a strong uh, command, a, a, an instruction, uh, a, a way for us to go, and an action for us to, to, to embrace. Uh, but we preach these messages, and sometimes we wonder, uh, are people following? What is the Holy Spirit doing in the, in the lives of his, of his children in our church? And so let me just share with you some good news in respect to that. It was on uh, June 26th that we were wrapping up James chapter 1. And it was a particularly pointed message. It was a difficult message to preach and probably to hear. We got down to the last two verses in James chapter 1. And those are the ones that really just sort of carried the punch of, of the message. And, and I'll, I'll read those to you as a reminder. James chapter 1 verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, that means a person who gossips or criticizes or, or judges or speaks unnecessarily. If he cannot control his tongue, then his religion is useless and he deceives himself. And so that's sort of the negative part of this. That's the first punch. And then the next verse is the positive part, but it's, it's the follow-up punch. It says this, pure and undefiled religion before God is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so we, we studied that in our, in our preaching time and we really tried to boil it down to its essence and we said it meant this, don't just be willing to obey God, obey him. Too, too many times we're willing to do all kinds of things but we don't actually do them. Let's do them instead of just being willing to do them. And if you're looking for some ideas, this verse gives us some. Take care of widows and orphans. And so we talked about orphans. And I challenge some of you to go and adopt an orphan. Uh, use the family that God has blessed you with to bless one of these one of these children who otherwise wouldn't have a loving home, uh, use it as an opportunity to, to share the gospel with somebody who otherwise might not hear it. And so take the opportunity and adopt or, or maybe foster. We, we said that there are enough people in our church that we could foster every needy child in Nacogdoches County. Or if you can't do either one of those, come see me and say, Pastor, I'm ready to write a check to somebody uh, who can do that. And so here's the good news. All three of those things have been happening in our church in the last several weeks. So we've got new people who are looking into adoption. We have new people who are looking into being foster parents. And we have had people come and sit down with me and say, Pastor, I'm ready to write the check. Just connect me uh, with a family that's ready to do this. And it is so exciting to see how God's people, young and old, respond to God's word and how the Holy Spirit just gives them an excitement and a joy when they're obedient in these things that we find, especially in the book of James. 
And so this, is, uh, this has just been a good week to be a pastor. This has been a good week to see uh, how God's been working uh, largely behind the scenes. So today we, we, we're in James still, we're spending our summer in James. We come to chapter four and we're going to begin reading in a moment in verse seven. It's page 1072, I believe, if you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you. I, I want to ask a question to start with, to frame what we're going to talk about this morning. If, if there is a missing piece in your spiritual walk, I wonder what it is. If, if there's something that's keeping you from a full experience of God's grace and God's peace and the joy that comes from walking with the Holy Spirit, if there is a missing piece in our spiritual lives, what do you think it is? You know, it's hard to say because it would be different for different people perhaps, but, but I think for most of us, the missing piece is not worship. Uh, we, we are worshipers. You're here this morning because you have a heart for worship. We have been taught well as a church to worship. I don't think it's devotion, personal devotion. While we can probably all do better in our devotional walk, I, I think it's a common thing in our church for people to have a, a, a Bible study in the morning and a prayer time with the Lord. We, we, we're pretty good at devotions. I, I don't think the missing piece is service. Many of you are serving the Lord faithfully. I, I don't think the missing piece is prayer. While all of us could pray better and pray more than we are praying, we are people of prayer. I, I don't even think it's obedience. Again, we could be much more obedient than we are. I think the missing piece for many of us is confession. I think for many of us, a regular confession of sin before the Lord is a missing piece in our spiritual lives. Confession is important, church. The Bible says it's necessary for salvation. Our salvation begins with us confessing our sins and confessing that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Confession is a requirement for living in the presence of God. Confession is the means whereby we receive mercy and blessing. Con confession is essential for joy and for gladness. It is the first step in figuring out how to make difficult decisions in life. Confession is critical to allowing the Lord to make you into the person that he wants you to be. Confession is important. And the Bible underscores this over and over and over. For instance, in Proverbs 28, 13, the Bible says, the one who conceals his sin will not prosper. But, the, but whoever confesses and renounces his sin will find mercy. He says that our spiritual lives, in a sense, uh, they, they hinge on whether or not we confess. And they hinge on whether or not we confess in a biblical way. I think about King David, known for his uh, sin with Bathsheba. Uh, there were many consequences uh, that came as a result of that sin. One was he was crushed uh, with depression and with guilt. And eventually he confesses his sin. Psalm 51 in your Bible is his confession. If you want to read that, one of the most interesting Psalms, one of the most helpful Psalms. Uh, but he comes down to verse eight and I can show this verse to you on the screen. And he says, as, as a part of his confession, this is the end of his confession. He says, let me hear joy and gladness and let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. 
Now, it's not true that all depression comes from sin, but in David's situation, it did come from sin. And it was when he confessed that the crushed bones were made whole again, that the weight was lifted and the joy returned. Confession is important, but confession is hard. And it is a very easy thing to get wrong. And I'm afraid that much of the confession that God hears, much of the confession that comes from people like me and people like you, is just wrong. We must get this right. In fact, I was studying through the Bible this week, looking for examples of confession. And I, I found five confessions in the Bible. I'm going to show these to you on the screen. I found five confessions in the Bible that sound great, but all five of them were rejected by God because they were not right. It's, it's easy to confess wrongly. It is hard to, to, to confess biblically. Let, let me give you an example. Pharaoh, and you may or may not know all of these Bible stories, but Pharaoh is, is one you perhaps know. Exodus 9.27, Pharaoh said, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the guilty ones. Sounds like a good confession, right? But it's not. And I put these scriptures in your outline so you can go back and read through the whole context of these if you would like. It would be a, a profitable study to do. You, you will discover if you do that, that his confession was simply a temporary confession meant to get him out of trouble. And we know it was contemporary. It was temporary because he, he went right back to the sin the next day. It sounded like a good confession, but it was not. Think about the confession of Balaam. Numbers 22, number 22, 34. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned for I do not know, I did not know that you were standing in the path to confront me. And now, if it is evil in your sight, I will go back. That sounds like a great confession. But God rejected that confession of Balaam. Uh, it turned out he had admitted to his sin, but he failed to confess his sin. We'll talk about the distinction between those two in a moment. Uh, that was a rejected confession, a failed confession. Uh, we can look at the confession of Saul, King Saul, 1 Samuel 15, 24. Saul answered Samuel and said, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words. Because I was afraid of the people, I obeyed them. Sounds like a good confession. But again, it was rejected by the Lord because as it turned out, it was a confession that did not involve a real conviction that what he had done was wrong. Saul failed in his confession. I'll give you another one. Achan, Joshua chapter 7, verse 20. Achan replied to Joshua, It is true, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. Again, sounds great, but God rejected his confession because he simply was sad that he had gotten caught. That's not the same thing as confessing. We'll see more about that in a moment. His confession failed. And then finally, the confession of Judas uh, Judas Iscariot, the one who uh, betrayed Christ, Matthew 27, 4, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. Sounded good. It was rejected. 
Turned out Judas had a worldly grief. The Bible talks about in 2 Corinthians 7 that there is a godly grief that leads to repentance and there is a worldly grief that leads to death and his very directly led to death. He killed himself following this confession. It was a confession that was rejected. Now, why don't we take the time and go through those five confessions? Because I want you to, I want you to know that as important as confession is, it's easy to get it wrong. We need to know, and thankfully, the book of James tells us very specifically, very carefully how to confess. We must know how to get this right. So how do we properly confess our sins? Well, James chapter 4, let's read these instructions. I would like to invite you this morning uh, to stand as we read these, just to give special honor Uh, to the fact that we are reading the Word of God this morning. So James chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, the Bible says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep, and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, And he will exalt you. Thank you for standing. Please be seated. So in these three verses, we see some very specific instructions for how to confess. This will be a simple message this morning. Nothing uh, profound, but it's, 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 it's important for us to know because so many people get this wrong. It's important for us to know how to confess. So number one, how to confess We must recognize our personal need for confession. You can't confess unless you understand how badly you need and I need to confess. So let's look back. I want you to see that this all comes straight from the words that we have read. Verse 8, James 4, 8. It begins by saying, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Now, does that not sound odd to you? Sometimes we read passages of scripture and we've read them so often, this is a very familiar passage, that we fail to, to notice some things that ought to cause us to pause, to slow down and, and, and ask, what does that really mean? What does it mean to draw near to God? I thought the Bible taught that God was everywhere. How far away are you? from God. Do we need to move to Nebraska? Do we need to move to Florida? Do we need to move to the coast? Do we go to China? I mean, how how do you get nearer to God? Do you you come up here on the platform? Do you you go home? What, What does it mean when it says draw near to God? Well, of course, it's not talking about a physical distance that you could measure with a tape measure. I'm six and a half feet from God or I'm three feet from God. No, the, the word nearness here means likeness. Be like God. Think like God. In character, be like God. When it says draw near to God, it's telling us to be more like God. If I'm sitting in my living room on my recliner and my wife is sitting on the couch across the way, she may be 10 feet from me if you were to measure us. And maybe my My dog is sitting right next to me. He might be 10 inches from me. And so in a physical sense, I am nearer to the dog. But in a real sense, I'm nearer to my wife. I mean, even though she is further away as as measured on a tape measure, she is nearer in that we are more alike. 
I mean, I'm not like my dog. You can't have a conversation with your dog, even if you think you can. You're not like your dog, but you are like the other people in the room. I am like my wife. When the Bible says draw near to God, it's not talking about moving physically. It's talking about becoming more like him. We must be like him. So that's, we're going to put this together. We're, we're, we're learning about the fact that to confess, I have to understand my personal need for confession. So he says, draw near, be like God. The second thing I want you to notice about that as we're putting this together is the very fact that he tells us to draw near tells us that we're not as close as we ought to be. He, he wouldn't tell us to draw near to God if we were already as near God, as like God as we possibly could be. What he's telling us is that every one of us have a need to confess. Every one of us have a need to draw closer to God. You're not as close to God as you could be, as you should be. Draw near to God. The first step in learning to confess is recognizing that there is a distance between me and God. That there is a need. Do you see that here? Draw near to God because you're not near enough now. You're not like enough now. And so for all of us, there is a need for confession. I must draw near to God. Now we're going to skip the last part of verse 8 and come back to it. But look back down to verse 9. He says, be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Whatever could that uh, mean? Well, it simply means that we must take our sin seriously. So why is it that we, we don't take sin more seriously? Let me give you some reasons. And these are in your outline. I, I think, first of all, we don't see our need for confession. We don't mourn over our sin because we compare ourselves to the wrong standard. I am tempted to compare my sin with your sin or with somebody else's sin I know. And we can always find somebody who sins worse than us. You know that? And as long as you're comparing yourselves, you're never going to be broken over your sin because you can always think of some rascal that's worse than you are. I mean, except for one of you. I mean, there's got to be the worst person out there. So, I mean, you can mourn over your sin, but the rest of us are looking at you. We're feeling pretty good. And so the reason why we don't see the seriousness of our sin is because we're comparing. If you want to compare yourself to somebody, compare yourself to Jesus. Compare your prayer life to his prayer life. Compare your obedience to his obedience. Compare your sacrifice to his sacrifice. But we don't want to do that. We want to compare to others. And that is one of the things that prevents us from realizing how badly we need to confess. Um, I heard a pastor talk about growing up in Indonesia in Indonesia, people are short. Uh, it's the shortest country in the world. The average height of a man is way less than five feet. And so this, uh, this boy grew up in Indonesia and uh, he was tall. He was five feet, four inches when he was fully grown. And uh, people were just amazed how tall he was. And he said that uh, you know, all, all in his growing up years, at school and at home and in the family, people would say, you're so tall. I mean, he was like a freak of nature. You are so tall. Well, he graduated from high school and he moved to America <laughs> where the average man is uh, over a foot taller than the average Indonesian man. And uh, he got here and he said from, from his earliest days, everybody was saying, you're so short. 
Now, is he tall or short? Well, it just depends on who he's comparing himself to. And if you feel spiritually tall, it's just because you're comparing yourself with a bunch of short people, right? We need to be careful we don't compare ourselves with others. If, as long as we do that, we'll not see the need to mourn over our sin and confess. There's, there's another thing that keeps us from confessing, and that is that we compartmentalize our sin. This is hard to explain, but I think this will ring true to you. Oftentimes, we divide our lives up into compartments, and we keep those compartments segregated. I mean, there's the church part of who I am, and then there's the work part of who you are, and then there's the school friends, there's the financial part of our lives, there's the sexuality part of our lives, and, and, and we see those as individual things. And, and, and we can do really, we just connect some of the compartments to God, by the way, the rest of them are off the books. You know what I mean? And so we feel really good because in this area of our life that we've connected with God, you know, we're reading our Bible and we're praying and we're going to church and we're serving and going on mission trips and we all, we, we, we're put together here. But now over in our financial part of our life where we're, we're, we're not being honest on our taxes and we're, and, and, and we're not being uh, wise with our money. Well, well that's sort of, that's a... Pastor, you got to understand, that's another compartment. I mean, that's this other thing. Or our sexuality, that, that's, that's a whole other thing. You know, what, what, a, you know what, what happened sexually, that's a whole other thing. And, and we, we compartmentalize our lives. And, and we feel like we don't need to confess because we've got a few parts of our lives that are really shining. They really look good. But what we've got to understand is that we are all of those parts. God sees us as a whole, not as, there's nothing off the books with, with God compartmentalize our lives keeps us from seeing the need for confession. A third thing is we just sometimes grow accustomed to sin. We sin and that sin in the beginning bothers us, but over time we just get used to it. You know what I mean? And it doesn't bother us anymore. It's just, uh, it's just no big deal now. We've been doing that for so long. We, we, it's hardly a blip on the screen. I had a pastor friend uh, years ago, I was a youth pastor, and this pastor would tell a story about uh, the first place he ever served as a senior pastor. He went to see uh, one of the senior adult ladies in his church. Uh, it's the first time he had been to her home, just a small, humble house. And he knocked on the door, he went in, he was visiting with her. And he said, all of a sudden, the house began to shake. And there was this loud noise and it got worse and worse. And he was scared to death. He didn't know if it was an earthquake, if it was a tornado or the Lord was coming back. But, but he was just, he was just petrified. It got louder and louder. And then it, then it began to diminish and it, and it went away. And, and he looked up at her and he said, what was that? And she said, well, pastor, get up off the floor and I'll, and I'll show you. And so, uh, he, she took him to the back of the house, just a tiny little house and opened the back door and not 15 feet past the back door, train tracks. And uh, she said, when we built this uh, house 50 years ago, those weren't there, but uh, they've put those in. And so when they put them in, we wanted to sell the house. We, we thought we, we've got to move. We can't live like this, but we just didn't have any money. There were no other options. And so we learned to live with it. She said, those trains come through here several times a day. If you hadn't been here, pastor, I would never even have known the train was here. I've just gotten used to it. She said they come all through the night. She said, my grandkids come over. They can't stay here overnight because of the nightmares that they have because of these trains coming through, scaring them to death. But I don't even notice anymore. She'd gotten used to this terrible train. 
sound and vibration over, over the years. Now, here's the problem with us. Some of us have, have trains of sin running through our lives, and we've just gotten used to it. There was a time when we, and it bothered us, but it doesn't bother us anymore. We've just grown accustomed to sin. That's another reason why people are, find it hard to confess. Uh, another reason. Let me give you some more very quickly. We embrace the wrong view of the seriousness of sin. Most of us think of sin on a continuum. On one end, we've got gossip. And on the other end, we've got murder. And, and as long as our sin is closer to the gossip end than the murder end, we think we're okay. That's not a biblical way to look at sin. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. The wages of any sin is death, big or small by the world's measurement. Jesus said in Matthew 5.48, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The standard is perfection, not uh, doing sin that's a little closer to the, to the not so bad side of the continuum. Uh, another reason why it's hard for us to see the need for confession is we forget who pays for sin. When I sin, who has paid for my sin as a child of God? Jesus. We forget that. Now, if, um, if you have a loved one who suffers physically, you go and you sit with somebody in the hospital, we've all experienced this, and you see somebody in there, they're suffering. I was in the hospital last week with somebody they had terrible stomach pain and they were just writhing in pain. It was hard to watch. And, and, but you watch somebody like that and, 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 and you grieve for them, right? You, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, is that the best word? You, you, you just, it's just hard to watch. You just, you, it hurts on the inside of you because it hurts on the inside of them. And, and I've heard some of you say, as we've sat in hospital rooms together, uh, I've heard some of you say of a loved one, I wish I could change places with them. And you mean it. You really do. So now the Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God grieves when we sin. Why do you think he grieves when we sin? Well, there are more than one reason. But one of the primary reasons is the Holy Spirit sees the connection between my sin and Christ on the cross. There's a connection between the two of those. The Holy Spirit sees that connection. And he, and he grieves over sin. You and I need to remember who pays the price when we sin. And, and then the final thing is a theological point, but I think it's important to make. Uh, it's hard for us to see the need for confession because we think that once for all forgiveness means once for all confession. Once for all forgiveness means once for all confession. Let me tell you how people make this theological error. Uh, how, how are we saved? How do we come into a right relationship with God? Confession, right? We confess that we're guilty of sin. We confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, when I confess my sins, God forgives me. How many sins or which sins does God forgive when I confess him as my Lord? Do you know? All of them, not part of them, not half of them. All of them, the past sins, the present sins, the future sins, all of my sins are forgiven. So as a child of God, are there any unconfessed sins in my life? I'm sorry, are there any unforgiven sins in my life? No, there can't be an unforgiven sin in my life. No matter what I do today, 
because God has already forgiven me of my sins. Now, that's all gospel truth. But here's where we make the wrong logical step. From there, we say, well, since I don't need further forgiveness from God, then I don't need to confess my sins any longer. But is that true? No. It's confession is is critical and it's necessary for, for a couple of reasons. Even, even though all of your sins are forgiven, it's still important for two reasons. One is because it's commanded, 1 John 1, 9. Secondly, and, and here's where I want you to understand how this works, because when you confess your sin, it restores fellowship with God. Fellowship. Now, you have a relationship with God that's unbreakable. If you're a child of God, you have a relationship with God based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross and that relationship can never be severed. There's nothing I can do that would sever my relationship with God. I will always be a child of God. But there are things I can do that will sever the fellowship with God, the closeness with God, the, the, the experiencing the presence of God, the knowing the joy of God. I, I, I will not ever lose the relationship, but I can lose the fellowship. I've got three daughters. Those daughters of mine will always be my daughters. There's nothing that will ever change that relationship. They will always be my daughters. But there are some things they could do that would break the fellowship, right? I mean, I, I enjoy the presence of my daughters, but there are some things they could do and I wouldn't any longer enjoy the presence of my daughters. And if they'd like to know what those are, I'd be glad to tell them because I don't want them to do any of those things. The fellowship can be broken. The relationship can't. Same way with God. And so when I confess my sin, it doesn't fix the relationship. The relationship is fine because it's based on what Christ has done. But it, it fixes the fellowship. I, I copy this illustration from somebody else, but it's the best one I know. Um, I, I, I usually wear a watch uh, on my wrist. And some churches I preach in, I'll take my watch off and I'll put it up here where I can see it. Uh, but here I, I can ignore that clock in the back just as easily as I can ignore my watch. So I just look back there. Uh, but, but let's say that I took my watch off and I, and I put it here and then I forget about it. I, I go and I'm maybe standing in the back after church and I'm shaking hands and greeting people. But I happen to notice up here that Mark has walked up here and I see him looking at my watch. And I think, well, what, what's he looking at? And then I notice he sort of looks around and he grabs it and he just slips it in his pocket. And I think that guy just stole my watch. So I'm waiting, you know, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. I wait to see if he says anything later in the day, he doesn't, and the next day, the next day. So I tell my wife after two or three days, I mean, I'm, I'm convinced. I said, Donna, Mark McClendon stole my watch. Now, because I try to be a spiritual person, I would at that point forgive him. And I would say, you know, I'm, I guess we're going to have to go buy another watch. But in the meantime, I forgive Mark. I guess there's things going on in his life I don't understand. And I always sort of worried about him anyway. But um, he's, he's forgiven. Okay, so then we just truck, all, truck along for the, for the next two or three months. What do you think Mark thinks every time he sees me? He thinks, I stole his watch. I mean, the fellowship would be broken. He, Mark wouldn't want to hang out with me. He, we wouldn't want, he wouldn't want to go out and have lunch together. He wouldn't want to come over to the house. I mean, because every time he sees me, he thinks, I stole his watch. But let's say after two or three months, the, the guilt is just too much. And so Mark comes to me and he says, listen, pastor, I, 
I need to confess to you. Uh, I uh, stole your watch and I put it in my pocket and uh, you've been wondering where it is for the last three months. I stole your watch. Would you forgive me? And I would say, Mark, I forgave you three months ago. You didn't know it, but I, I saw you steal my watch. I, it was no secret to me. I knew you had done it and I forgave you. And so Mark doesn't receive forgiveness at that point, but what does he receive? The fellowship is restored. Now we're okay. Does that make sense? And so why do we need to confess our sins even if God has already forgiven us? God already knows, and he is, if you're a child of God, he's already forgiven. Praise the Lord. But the fellowship is restored. So if we're going to confess, this is so important. We can't, this, this seems like the first step, and I'm spending most of the time on this step for a reason. It seems like we ought to be able to just skip over this. If you need to confess, but it's, we can't. This is the most, this is where people get this wrong. You can't confess your sin unless you know that you need to confess your sin. Draw near to God. Weep, mourn, cry, be brokenhearted over your sin. That's step number one. So step number two, if we're going to confess our sins in a godly way, we have to initiate specific changes in our lives. Now let's look back at verse eight, the second part. He says, cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, I told you earlier that there's a difference between admitting and confessing. And here it is. To confess your sins, you have to be committed to making a change. Confessing doesn't just mean you tell God you did it. It means you tell God you did it and you regret it and you want to change it. You see the difference? Oftentimes when you hear people confess, they're just telling you they did it. I did it. I did it yesterday and I plan to do it again tomorrow. Oftentimes when we confess, we confess to God, today I, I did something wrong and I'm going to do it again tomorrow and I made plans to do it the next day. That's not confession. That's admitting. Admitting. Admitting is part of confession. It's like step one, but it doesn't finish uh, the, the, the deal. We, we have to not only confess, uh, admit, we have, to, we have to confess, which involves regretting and, and changing. Have you ever heard anybody say, it's easier to get forgiveness than permission? You ever heard that? Nobody in the first service had ever heard that before, but they hang out with a better crew than you and I do. I, I hear people say that. It's better to, get, better to get forgiveness than permission. I hate when I hear that because when we say that, we, we, we're, missing, we, we're communicating that we just don't understand what, where forgiveness comes from. Confession and forgiveness are not the same thing. Confession leads to forgiveness. But uh, if we were to properly say that sentence, that, that proverb, it's easier to get f forgiveness than permission. We would say it this way. It's easier to regret your sin than to get permission. But you wouldn't say that, right? Because that's not true. You can't pre-regret your sin. You can't say, all right, I'm about to do something. And when, and when I finish, I'm going to really regret that I did it. Here I go. No, if you, were gonna, if you knew you were going to regret it, you wouldn't do it. So, so can, if, if, if it's a genuine confession, we have to be, it's not just admitting it, it it's regretting it. God, I'm sorry I did it. I wish I hadn't done it. And I, and I want to change. You see that? Let's, we have not confessed our sins if we've just told God about it. He already knew. If we don't regret and we don't want to change, 
No confession is, has happened. No confession. Now you notice here he says, he's talking about clean hands. He says, cleanse your hands. Where does that come from? Well, that's from Exodus uh, 30, 20. Uh, the, the Old Testament priest had to cleanse their hands before they would lead in worship. Now, what, why did God tell them to wash their hands? God was communicating to the Hebrews uh, that in order to come before God, to be fully accepted by God, you don't just recognize that your hands are dirty. It doesn't say just acknowledge that your hands are dirty. He said, no, you've got to cleanse them. You've got to have a, a willingness to be changed. And if there's no willingness to be changed, regret and change, then there is no uh, confession. I love Psalm 24, 3 and 4. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Good questions. Who can come to God? And it says, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. There has to be a, a, a willingness to change. Don't just go to God and say, God, I did this, this, and that. See you tomorrow. And then tomorrow, I did this, this, and that. Now, you may sin the same way 35 days in a row, but you can't plan on sinning the same way 35 days. You understand? There's got to be regret and there's got to be change. Now, number three, if we're going to have a, a confession that God accepts, we must surrender to the provision of Christ. Now, let's look at that last verse that we read earlier, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What does that mean? In 1 Peter 5, uh, 6, it, it, the same verse appears, but there's a couple of extra words on the end. It says, humble yourselves and, and notice on the, on the screen, and he will exalt you when? At the proper time. So let me tell you what this means. We all have needs and desires in our lives. We have need to be satisfied. We have need to be accepted and loved by other people. We have need to have financial security. Uh, we, we have a lot of needs in life. But you're either going to seek to fulfill those needs yourself or you're going to wait on God to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he will exalt you in due time means that you're going to wait and let God fulfill your needs. So you're part of confession, knowing I need it, willing to change. But then the final part is being patient and waiting on God to take care of you. So here's how this works. People will... Um, People have a, a need to be financially secure. And so instead of waiting on God to provide for them and living wisely in the meantime, uh, they'll go steal something or, or, or they'll go do some kind of self-promotion or they'll lie or they'll misrepresent something or they'll, they'll be a part of a deal they ought not be a part of. And what are they doing? They're not humbling themselves and waiting for God to meet their needs in due time. No, they've gone down their own path. We had a lot of single people in our church. And, and, you, and you know what a lot of single people do? They want to get married. There's nothing wrong with wanting to get married. God may have put that desire in your heart. But instead of waiting on God, humbling yourself and letting him exalt you at due time, no, you go out and take your own route to find somebody to marry. And so, so you, you give yourself up sexually or, or, or you go and, and, and you date somebody that, that is not bringing you closer to the Lord or you go places to find a mate that you know you ought not go to to find a mate. And, and, and the whole thing is you're not willing to be patient, humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. He will scratch that itch. He will meet that need at the proper time. Confession. You got to know I need it. I got to mourn over my sin. I got to be willing to change, but I got to, I got to also be patient and wait 
Wait on the Lord. Wait for God to give you that promotion. Wait for God to fight for you. Wait for God to give you a spouse. Wait for God to make you secure. Wait. You know, there's only one thing that can take peace away from you. And that's sin. Nothing else can rob you of your peace. And there's only one kind of sin that can rob you of peace. You know what kind that is? Your sin. Somebody else's sin can make you suffer, but it won't rob you of peace and joy. Only your sin will do that. And there's only one way to restore that peace and joy, and that is confession. And there's only one kind of confession that God will accept. Confession from a broken heart. Confession with a desire to see a change. And confession that surrenders to God and says, I will wait for you to provide. You know, there's a, there's a verse in Psalm 51. We looked at one a little earlier in the, in the message. But verse 17 of that chapter, I think, is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Look with me on the screen. It says, the sacrifice uh, that's pleasing to God is a broken spirit. And you will not despise, the Bible says of the Lord, a broken and a humbled heart. If you're a child of God, God waits for you to come and confess. I really do believe that for many of us, this is one of the missing pieces in our regular walk with God. It's periodic time of confession. So here's what we're going to do as we just wrap this up. We're going to have a time of confession, not with one another, not with each other, uh, but with the Lord. And so we're going to stand and sing one of my favorite songs. It's a hymn, not really a contemporary song, but uh, we're going to stand and sing. He is able. I love this song because it's true. He is able. He is able to receive you. He is able to help you. But his power hinges on your confession. So here's what we're going to do. There will be some ministers here in the front. If you need to come talk to somebody, they'll be here for you. But I want to invite you, and you can do this at your seat. You don't have to come forward. But, it, but the act of coming forward may help somebody around you be more bold in their confession. I want to ask you if the Lord has laid this upon your heart just to come and kneel at this altar for a moment or sit at this front seat just for a moment or two and just confess to the Lord. Maybe the missing piece one of the missing pieces in your spiritual life is there need to be a time of confession. It can be refreshing. It can be re restorative. And it can be a tool that God will use to restore your joy. Let me ask you to stand. I want to pray and we'll sing. Father, I, I pray you give us humble hearts. I, I'm afraid... I'm often blinded by my own pride. It's often true of me that I'm not broken over my sin. And, and Father, but I know when, when somebody is not broken over their sin, it's not because they don't sin. It's because their heart is just so hard. And I know when I'm not broken over my sin, it's, I know why. So I pray your Holy Spirit will make our hearts soft. Father, this might be maybe a, a new kind of beginning for some people as we, as they have the boldness, either where they stand or here at the front, just to come, not worried what other people will think. Some sins will be that will be confessed will be big sins and some will be small sins as the world measures it. That's not even the issue. 
but that people would have the soft-hearted obedience and humility just to confess their sins to you today. So lead us, give us boldness in that, that we might receive uh, the refreshing grace and mercy that comes from heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing. You come as we respond.